0: good people. I am Merck and this is the Dynamite Hill podcast for all of my first timers. Welcome to the hill, to all my old heads. Y'all already know what it is. So boom, I told you guys um, over the last couple of weeks, we're going to have a conversation, kind of centered this dialogue around kind of black health, black health advocacy and a lot of the issues that kind of circulate around it. Um, as you guys know, last week we had Dr. Jasmine Berry come in and, you know, she spoke upon some general kind of black health topics. And this week I am tremendously fortunate and happy to be able to have three beautiful black women, black doctors, black mothers here to kind of expound upon some of those things and dive a little bit deeper into some of the areas that we didn't get necessarily an opportunity to talk about. So I will, um allow them to introduce themselves and give their background and credentials. And um, we'll jump right in. I'll start with Tip. Tip, tell the people who you are, what you got going.
1: <laughs> hey, everyone. My name is uh, Tiffany Irving, Dr. Tiffany Irving. I am Respect. a um, adult <laughs> nurse practitioner. I've been practicing as an adult MP um, since 2012. Um, so I'm going into my almost my 10th year of practice. Um, I specialize in hospital medicine, so I treat patients on the in- inpatient side, and it's just internal medicine, so I treat a variety of, it's like the Walmart of the hospital, we just kind of get everything. Um, graduated with my doctorate in 2019, so um, and my focus for my doctoral program was health literacy in african Americans. so I um, Hopefully, I'll have a lot to um, give to this podcast, and thank you so much, Merck, for having me.
0: Let's
2: Hello, hello, everyone. I am Dr. LaKeisha Rowe, and I am a family nurse practitioner. I have been an MP since the end of 2015. Um, after my nursing career, about eight years was in emergency medicine, and then I switched over to become a nurse practitioner. My experience there was an outpatient setting in rheumatology. So um, very specialized medicine, but definitely um, became passionate about that. And actually, I've been away from the bedside for the last year because I did have a pandemic baby in October 2020. um, And now I am in education. I am a content expert at a ADN RN program. And so switching it up a bit. And that's me.
0: So, what's so. up, sis?
3: Everybody, I'm Dr. Tennille Curtis. Um, my background is in pediatrics. I've been a pediatric nurse practitioner for the past eight years. Um, my other specialty is in academia. I'm also an assistant dean for one of the largest NP programs in the United States. Um, and also, I am a mother of a pandemic baby as well. Um, and I Uh, My main focus and what I got my DNP on is in self-care for healthcare providers and patients.
0: For sure, for sure. So, um, great backgrounds, great stories. Um, I'm really looking forward to kind of this conversation um, for for any anyone that's kind of new to the community, new to the group, um, and has not kind of been following from the past. uh, You know, this is like nostalgia. This is like UA. In a particular time, in a particular moment, and I have not seen and chopped it up with all of these beautiful women in such a long time. So I'm excited for the conversation, excited for the content, and excited to get some of that um that that real, you know, UA that era back in this conversation. So <laughs> old school, old school. <laughs> oh, we oh yeah. Well, now nah, we all
4: Hell yeah, <laughs> yeah. seasons.
0: Season. There you I go. Like Season. Better. There you go. I like, I like that <laughs> a lot better. A lot better. All right, y'all. So, boom. Um, you know, one of the main things um, that, you know, I've really been wanting to try to get the point across and really try to get perspectives and um, start some dialogue on is around self-advocacy, right? When it comes to health care, um, as you, we kind of talked about and, you know, we touched on some previous podcasts, there's always seemed like, you know, amongst the black community, there's a bit like a trepidation of kind of cautiousness, of concern about kind of going and interacting and engaging with, uh, you know, your healthcare providers, not knowing what to say, not knowing how to truly advocate for yourself. Um, What are some of the things that you guys see um, when dealing with, be it black folks in general, black women coming in and not necessarily being prepared to really take it, you know, be self advocates for their own health? Could you guys speak to some of that?
1: Um, just from what I've noticed, um, plays a huge role in, okay, so like I said, my background is hospital medicine. So by the time patients reach, reach my, you know, to me, my encounter, you know, it's past something that can be managed in the clinic, like they're, they're mm-hmm. sick. Um, and what I've seen a lot amongst black women in particular is fear, um, and I think a lot of that plays goes into mistrust in the healthcare system that that has been you know played the black community for years. But we go and go and go and put off and put off and put off going to the doctor until mm-hmm. stuff is bad. No choice. Um, I don't know if it's fear of what it could be, so I'm just going to ignore it until I I have no choice but to to um, deal with it. But it puts us in a very very tough situation in regards to our health and. Um like I said, by the time they get to me, things are are bad. and I just wish we could be more proactive and not reactive um, mm-hmm. in terms of our health and just you know taking the necessary steps so sure we don't get to the place where we need to be hospitalized. But I think fear is a huge, huge component of um, the disparity in general among black you know black women and why our health has kind of been on decline here recently um, in the past few decades.
3: Um, To touch on that, Tiffany, I also think that we as black women, we have been taught at an early age to be strong black women and that we have to hold everything in place. Mm -hmm. We we take care of the family. We take care of the finances. We take care of the kids. We take care of our spouses. We take care of our other family members, our jobs. But then we always put ourselves on the back burner. And I think that's why when they get to you, they are already at the end. And so we, I think if we as black women, not only do we need to be transparent about our health in the beginning or at least have some self-awareness about it, but we need to honestly step back and put our priorities back in order. And self-care should be at the top. Our health should be at the top because spiritually, emotionally, physically, mentally. And I think by the time we get to you, it's too late. And then now it's a burden and it's not a priority. And then we, then we don't want to take it um, or get the help that we need because now it's, it's too much for us. Like, oh, um, I
1: can't be in the hospital because I yeah. got kids. You know. So it just, yeah. Yeah, it's like a domino effect. You keep putting off and putting off and putting yeah. off. At some point, you know, it's going to blow up and it's going to be bad. Um, so, yeah, agreed. I agree with everything you said.
0: Yeah. You know, guys, my mom, like even now, me being a full adult, I've kind of had to take on that responsibility. I'm the oldest kid. My, my baby sister's 22. And my mom, even to this day, is so apprehensive when it comes to, you know, going to get regular checkups, doing the things that she needs to do. She has some kind of, you know, ongoing ailments that she's been dealing with, and I have to fuss at her. And her first thing is like, oh, I don't want to tell you because I don't want you to be worried. You got a blog going on. And it's like, it doesn't, it doesn't make, it doesn't work if you're so concerned about yourself that you know, so concerned about everyone else that you don't prioritize yourself. And I have to fuss at her about, you know, you can pour into everyone's glass, but if you don't tell me how to pour back into yours, if you don't allow me to pour back into yours, you can't keep refilling if you run empty. But, you know, Tanil, you touched on something um, very um, kind of particular there that I also kind of want to lean into, you know, with the three of you being mothers, you know, relative to understanding that from, you know, a practitioner's side, from a mother's side, being able to see all these different things and know all these different things and having all these different responsibilities, um, how are you guys in in kind of managing that as moms and as providers, knowing kind of both sides of the coin? Did y'all catch any of that?
1: It's kind of going in and out. Can you yeah. repeat the question one more time?
0: yeah. So I wanted to kind of know from your perspectives, both as as moms and providers, kind of being these women in your families, how are you balancing taking care of yourselves as well as kind of being, you know, matriarchs and running the family, taking care of the kids, doing the career and all the other things? How are you guys kind of managing that personally? <laughs> Anybody? <laughs> be, honest. Be, honest. Be, honest. <laughs> um, be honest. right? <laughs> <You're>
4: not <managing.
1: laughs> uh, I've i found it challenging. You know, my my son is he just turned five months, and um, this is my you know my first child, and I'm still trying to find a balance. So, you know, Tani and Keisha kind of have more years in terms of motherhood experience than I do. But um, as a working mom with a husband. a a brand new infant. Um, My own health challenges, I have found it difficult. Um, So I would like to hear from the two of them about how they've kind of managed over the years. I mean, it's hard. It's hard adjustment. um, And I'm still trying to find my way. And that's just the honest truth. That's the Mm -hmm. honest truth.
3: For me, I actually use humor. Um, I use humor to get through everything. I just laugh at like what we're going through, like, you know, I woke up this morning with a foot in, in my mouth, you know, like a foot against my head and one right here in my mouth and the other baby sleeping right here. I mean, it, it's challenging, but to be honest, the way I get through it is I have a really good family support system. Um, I wouldn't be able to do this without my spouse. Um, we're a team. We make everything a team. I I, I wash and bathe the child and I hand him off to the next, I hand him off to the next person. And then he does what he has to do and then I get this done. But to be honest, I use humor and my faith. Um, I have to focus on my spiritual health. And by doing that and working on my physical health, it keeps me grounded. Um, because to be honest, we all don't have parenting skills. We are taught from K through 12 to, you know, to learn about geography, learn about math, learn about science and all of this. But when are we taught the things in life that we really need about how to take care of ourselves mentally, how to take care of ourselves physically, how to... Um, communicate even in your job and your work and your life. And then now boom, you have a baby. When are we taught to take care of this baby? You know, we we mimic things that we see in our black culture within our families. So we take on those things. But then at the same time, now that all three of us, you know, being highly educated, And and having different experiences, we see now, Okay, I might not want to yell at my child the way my mama did or throw that shoe at me like my mama did. You know, it's like different things that we we start to grasp. I think, honestly, having your child fed, cleaned and, and happy are the three things that you can mostly focus on as a mom. Other than that, we're all struggling. And I think that transparency should be shown invisible and talked about between black mothers in a community, and it's not. Because um, me and Mark had this conversation uh, previously in a personal talk, you know, what happens in your house stays in your house. You know, we were taught that as kids. And so I feel like we don't trust or talk to each other. I know we three tell each other things, we go through stuff, we communicate. And I think that's the only way to be honestly to get through the challenges because I have that soundboard, you know? So spirituality, and soundboard. Yeah.
2: So typically for me, um, I am really big on routine. Um, people who know me know that I'm pretty like type A. Like I like to have things decent and in order. And as long as that is flowing, then so am I. So I actually am dealing with... Um, a, a time of my life where I'm not like I I, I laughed, you know, that I'm not managing it because I thought that I was, but different life circumstances have thrown a um in my plan. So I am a military spouse, and with that comes its own set of challenges. And um, we recently made a big move from uh, the east coast, literally across the country to the west coast to California. So you know, I had a baby in October. We moved across the country in March, um, that whole thing, trying to get adjusted with the move, trying to get the boys adjusted with the move. And my husband with a new job has a lot of training and he has been gone most of the time that we've been here. So to Neil, Tiffany, I'm super jealous of your you know, family support because I have no one. And so that's been very different for me. Um, and I am actually in the, in the throes of having a self-evaluation of my own health, physical and mental. Um, I actually ended up like in the emergency room because I was having palpitations, feeling dizzy, you know, while I was just sitting at my desk, you know, not racing up the stairs or not running behind the boys. I was just, just like this, just typing on my computer. And my heart rate was bouncing back and forth and my blood pressure was through the roof. Never had a problem with my blood pressure before, not even when I was pregnant, either time. And, um, I'm, I'm dealing with that. You know, I'm now I'm checking my blood pressure twice a day. Like I have a little monitor, you know, I'm watching what I eat, which I typically am generally health conscious anyway, but it's like, do I have hypertension or is this stress induced? you know, stress induced high blood pressure or anxiety induced high blood pressure. And then it's like, why do I have high blood pressure? You know, I'm pretty active when I can. I eat better than anybody like in my family that I know of. Um, Is it just my turn? Like, because everybody in my family has hypertension or is this life that has brought this on? And so it's really been adjusting or trying to adjust now to not having control, essentially. Um, Like I said, having things in order, having a pattern. And when your spouse is here and then gone for six weeks, when he's here and he's gone for two weeks and then you're left literally with, you know, two boys in a city, a state that I don't know. I'm literally picking up, dropping out, picking up, dropping off. I'm working in between coming home. What are we going to eat? Get the boys bathed, get them to bed on time. You know, and I have an 11 month old you know, he sleeps when he wants, he wakes up when he wants. So it's not like, oh, I just go to bed and wake up refreshed. It's like, you may go to bed and then he wakes up. Mm -hmm. And so that has been an adjustment. And I've really had to stop myself to take a self inventory, like, okay, Keisha, what can wait till tomorrow? What can wait till the weekend? Um, What can you do when the boys go down? You know, now watch like ridiculous TV stuff. That's like stupid, but I laugh, you know, No, and it's like simple things like that because I wasn't doing that before because I was just trying to get things done. So, you know, having ways to manage it also includes when you see that those things aren't working, then what do you do? How do you adjust? And so I'm in the adjustment phase myself.
0: And I'm really glad you guys kind of shared that because that's one of the things I think that's one of the stigmas when we talk about kind of self-care that we kind of forget that everyone has things going on. And we always make kind of make excuses and they're legitimate excuses. You have life, you know, that you have to kind of manage and take care of. And, you know, having kind of that transparency, which I really appreciate from you. all just kind of saying like, hey, you know, kind of figuring out as we go, like there's no plan. There's no map to this. I think that provides a lot of reassurance for folks because, you know, a lot of people, like we say, we have so much access to people's lives by what we see is that you don't really get a true understanding of how people are managing all the different areas of their lives, how women are managing careers, husbands, spouses, motherhood, households, things like that. And knowing that there's no perfect formula, you just have to figure out the ways that work for you to prioritize all the things in your life, including prioritizing yourself. So I appreciate you guys sharing that for sure. But you know, even kind of pivoting just, just a little bit, and you know, we kind of talked about some of the things that you know you that you all kind of experienced like personally and we shift back to kind of talking about our own health and our own self-advocacy and being able to you know one once we figure out how to accommodate this time for ourselves right to be able to take care of ourselves and then we go into these conversations we go into these doctors offices and um tip you spoke on the fear component of it what are some ways that you guys have seen or have helped maybe coach the patient through where there's a little bit of fear, a little bit of apprehension, not knowing what questions to ask or not asking questions at, at all? I'm, I'm sure you all have stories. We've talked about a little bit before, but kind of explain why you think that fear exists, why that apprehension exists to really kind of jump in. I
2: know I can speak from experience since I worked in the um you know, more of the outpatient setting is the entire like almost five years that I was working in rheumatology, which is quite a specialized area of medicine. You know, people who came to see me were there for a specific reason. Um, They were very surprised to see someone who looked like them. Um, I mean, as soon as, you know, I introduced myself as a nurse practitioner, you know, like to delineate myself from, you know, you know, medical assistant or just someone who was in the room typing, you know, nothing wrong with those roles, but they're, they are important. But when they realize that I'm the one who's going to be taking care of them, um, one layer seems to come off. Mm-hmm. And once, you know, in the conversation that you have with, with, with the patients, you can kind of tell in the first one to three minutes, like if they're going to talk to you, if they're going to feel comfortable with you. And a lot of times, once I get that cue, then I have to switch on my shared decision-making hat, which that's typically how nurse practitioners practice anyway, is with shared decision-making. And what that means is you have a real open communication with the patient. You assess where they are and you assess where they want to be. Like, what are their goals for their health? Okay, like, if you come into me for rheumatoid arthritis you know, and you say, oh, I want to be pain free and I don't want to have RA, then I have a responsibility to to say, okay, listen, okay, there's no cure for RA and it's chronic. So you'll have it for the rest of your life. Being pain free, I won't promise you, but this is what we can do to increase your function, to reduce your pain and, you know, to improve your quality and my patients have always appreciated that more than saying oh yeah everything will be fine be, yeah, you won't feel anything perfect you'll be great you take this I'm gonna give you trust me you'll, you'll feel like you don't even have like you don't even have it because we have been kind of fed those uh, essentially those medical lies are pacified with those promises and then they're not delivered and then that's another seed of mistrust that is planted. Um, and also just kind of getting like sometimes, just like this face to face, like, Are you taking your medicines? Yeah, 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 doc. I'm, because they always call you, <laughs> so you tell them, I'm a nurse practitioner, yeah, doc. I'm and I go, Are you taking your medicine? <laughs> and they're like, I, you know, I forgot to pick them up. I'm like, Listen, listen. I can't help you if you are not honest with me. Mm-hmm. And like once you have a like an interaction like that, when you see them the next time or the next time after that, they go, I got my like I'll see them in the hallway. I got my laps. Because last time you got on me, you know, for not yeah. doing the labs. The comfortable. Like that. comfortable. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I just think it takes you have to build a relationship. Um and it's not all it's not their responsibility to build a relationship with me because I have something that they need, but so do other people. So they could go somewhere else and get what I have to offer them. So when I see a patient at a certain level in that, um, you know, seeking care, then I need to go where they are. I need to meet them where they are. So um, that's kind of been my take and my experiences.
1: And meeting meeting patients where they are, uh, where they are, I think is essential with communication, um, with trust between patient and provider, um, and that kind of plays into the whole health literacy component. Sometimes you you really have to literally, and this just isn't with you know black patients, but patients in general. Break it down to like the bottom. Like, do you understand what I'm trying to tell you? Because people. And that's that's part of the reason why they're not as engaging in doctor's appointments. When you round on them in the hospital, they literally don't understand, and they don't want to come off as, okay, I sound stupid, so Mm -hmm. they don't ask the appropriate Mm -hmm. questions. You know what I mean? Instead of, um, you like, you have to break it down to a level that they understand. And it's important for me when I see patients to sit down at the bedside, look them in their face, okay. This this is what we're doing today. How can I make you understand where you are in terms of your health and what, what the plan will be for the rest of the day? And, you know, a lot of our providers, um, some of them have like accents. They don't understand, but they won't stop and say, can you I don't understand what you're saying so when I come in the room it's kind of refreshing like Keisha was saying they feel like sometimes not all the times but a lot of times they do feel like they can actually sit down and ask me questions that they didn't necessarily understand from other providers just because I look like them Um, so I you know you have a responsibility to kind of go a little extra for for our people because nobody else is gonna do it Um, Mm -hmm. you know it's unfortunate but it's the reality of the healthcare system.
3: Yeah, I think um, for for me, I see the fear as part of insecurity and part of experiences. So for insecurity part, it's usually they think the doctor or the nurse practitioner is smarter than them, and they're not smart enough, like Tiffany said. Um, and when we sit down with them in a nurse practitioner or a nurse way, as Keisha says, we we break it down and we're comfortable with them, and we communicate, and that just opens them up, and it just peels them like onions, to be honest, because then we can sit down with them. We're just like you. We're the same people. I go to the same grocery store. This is the same stuff I buy. We're we're on the same level. I might know a little bit more information than you, but that's my goal now to make sure that you understand what I know so that I can make sure that your health is at our priority is the priority at the, at the moment, you know? And I think with having not only the insecurities, it's experiences. They've gone to the doctor and they've seen that doctor just rush out, rush in, and then they rush out, mm-hmm. you know? And then, so they're like, oh, well, this is gonna be just a regular appointment. But then when they meet somebody like us that looks like them, <laughs> like them, understands what they're talking about when they're mentioning something, uh, for example, um, I was working in the seizure unit for pediatrics. They were terrified about getting leads placed in their head, you know, and I had to explain to them, you know, it's okay. This is what we're going to be doing. But the people that were working around, they didn't understand the concept of we, or the concept of we need to take this, her hair out. You know, it was just that like gave so much relief for that person. And it was like, okay, now she understands me because before they were heightened, they were getting frustrated, they were getting upset. I'm not about to do this. You know what, I'm gonna reschedule my appointment. And now their health has become, their healthcare has become inferior now. It's no longer superior to them. It's no longer anything else. But I had to step in as an advocate for them to explain to the people who did not know so they can understand, you know? And I think just by having those experiences, we've got to change the way that they view or give a different perspective. Um, And that will stop the fear if we give a different perspective and we give and we stop the insecurities because we have to realize that we're all the same people. But like Tiffany said, we have people in our black community because we we are the talented 10th. You know, we're that 10 percent. We are the ones that got the education got what we needed to know. Now we've got to spread it back out to our community so they can be better for their health.
0: And, you know, we see this like cross industry, you know, in a ton of different things where we have members of the black community who through, you know, work and help and support and whatever the case kind of ascend to certain levels, you know, of education, certain levels in their career. And there's always this responsibility that's like, seems like it's just sitting on your shoulder that you have to be responsible for everyone else that looks like you. Like for me, you know, I've been in, you know, marketing, communications, management, for, you know, 10 years. And whenever I have, I walk into an office, I immediately try to identify, all right, who's the, who's the black person on my staff? Who's the person of color? Who's the woman on my staff? You know what I'm saying? It's like, all right, I have to try to build a trust and rapport because I know at this particular point, they're probably looking at me as like, like you're, you're all I have to kind of get this in line. So you all talked about kind of that re- that relatedness and that kind of community that operates when you kind of see, you know, a black provider. I'm the same way. Like when I walk in, like it's like in, know, it's black woman, black dudes, like, oh, okay, all right, I can, you know, kind of yeah. kind of feel comfortable. Do y'all feel like a responsibility to have to do that every time? Or is it like like what what does that feel like? Kind of knowing like Keisha, you spoke about cues. Like what when you kind of see that, like what What is that responsibility, that feeling that you feel like you have to go the extra mile, you know, for a black patient?
2: You know, you know, you. Well, I know I, but we typically can, like, recognize a side eye. Like Mm -hmm. when you go in, you introduce yourself to the patient um, and you're talking to them and they're just like, mm hmm. And they kind of give you that look and then you, you have to stop, you know, because we, we have to, you know, chart in the chart. Everything has to be documented. And you're like actually supposed to be having an active conversation with the patient. And if you become so enthralled in doing our task, then you miss that because, you know, you'll look over and then you'll go. You have to turn around and face the patient and go, you know, do you really understand? And like completely, you know, step away from the computer, you know, get up, get closer to them. Um, Kind of ask them some leading questions because, you know, saying, do you understand is different than tell me what you know about your whatever, you know,
4: mm-hmm.
2: you know, if it's blood pressure, you know, have your blood pressures been fine? Yeah, they've been fine. That's different than what have your blood pressures been over the last two weeks? OK, and they go, ah, I'm beyond with dang you, cool. you know, you know, but that's different than them saying, yeah, they've been fine. So those are types of questions that I have to ask to get the information that I need, versus just you know letting them breeze through their their time slot. Um, one of the worst things that I I my personal opinion about healthcare is the fifteen minute time slot. Um, it's like a chokehold on my neck as a provider. Um, it's a gray cloud over your clinic, over wherever you are, because everybody is keeping that in mind. But to that patient that is a moment in time, that's their life. So 15 minutes doesn't mean anything to them. Um, they may get ready to ask you the most important thing that they wanted to ask you at minute 17. You know, so what am I supposed to do as a provider? Like, bang, oh, 15 minutes are up, Seeing you in, you know, two months or whatever. So if you don't help to kind of steer the conversation to pick the right types of questions, um, I feel if I let them leave without trying harder to get them to a different level, like I'm not trying to put them on, you know, educate them to know what I know or to have them say, oh, I'm perfectly fine with my disease. Oh, this is great. You know, because that takes time, but at least giving them some type of comfort that the disappointment was worth their time. They learned something. They got to ask me a question that they've never asked about their illness before Um, or even that they got to voice, you know, I'm going to be, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't like this medicine. I don't like the way it makes me feel. And then, okay. Tell me about that. Um, there are a lot of people who take medications. They don't like them because of the side effects. They stop taking them because of the side effects, but they keep picking them up from pharmacy. Mm -hmm. So if I call the pharmacy, this patient getting that medicine, yep, they're picking it up. So I'm thinking they're taking them, but without me digging deeper um, I just allow the patient to breeze through, and I breeze through my day. And once they leave me, will they ever get the attention they need? I don't know. So that's why I feel the personal responsibility to do that while I have them with, in front of me. Because once they leave you, they may never come back to you ever. You know. And once they're lost to the follow up, that's like one of the worst things. Um, so definitely feel a sense of responsibility to. To get it while you
1: can. It's like once they see me, once I see them in the hospital, once they go home, I don't see them again. Like it's not like a, a clinic where, okay, I'm gonna see them again in three months. So I literally have to put forth the effort to make sure the patients understand what they need to do once they get home to not come back to me in the hospital again. And don't get me wrong, like I can go in with the, you know, the whole Dr. Irvin facade and then take it off and like, okay, I'm Tiffany, I'm talking to you face to face and some of them still won't open up. Mm -hmm. Um, And you can try and push and push and push but some of us are just guarded. And, you know, I think that's because of a lot of different factors. But that is where my sense of responsibility comes from for black patients, because once they leave the hospital doors, I don't wanna see them again because I don't want to ever get that bad. I want them to understand what they need to do outside of the hospital to prevent having to come back to me again. Um, and it, it, it gets tough. It's hard, especially when they don't let that wall down. Um,
4: yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's tough because it's one of those things where, you know, what you kind of talking to like systemic issues that extend beyond medicine, but have a very, very strong grip within medicine as well. Where even we look at some of the stuff kind of around COVID and, you know, the mistrust and not wanting to listen to healthcare professionals, healthcare providers, you know, it's, it's, it's a huge kind of like thing of mistrust. And I think that, um, Black providers have an added, I don't necessarily say burden, but I don't to necessarily want to say responsibility either, but it's like this added component um, that, you know, I've seen, you know, personally with my providers that there's like a, a component of like added care literacy that just goes on, that's on top of whatever I'm going into the doctor's office for. And, you know, I used to be the same way. I would go in, you know, I have a uh, hyperthyroidism, as I was 12, I would go in, you know, my mom would take me when I was younger. I started going on my own and I probably didn't really start kind of asking the questions and doing the things I need to do to probably like six, seven years ago to be completely honest with y'all. And it's so many things that happened throughout that time that I just kind of let fall aside. And I'm sure that's the case with a lot of folks. And it's, 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 it's a difficult thing to try to figure out how to break down those walls and Keisha, like you were saying, and you tip as well, having to try to figure out how to best maneuver around these guards and these walls in this finite amount of time that I have. And I can only imagine kind of the the responsibility that you guys feel to kind of carry that. But I know one of the things for me that I always try to ask when I leave and I'll kind of throw this to you guys, is I always ask my providers like, what can I do specifically better to come in here the next time or not have to come in here in some cases the next time so that I won't feel like you're going to fuss at me when I'm here, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, what what are what are some of the things, and this can be as general or specific as you want, what are some things that we can do as patients that have to interact with you guys to be better patients, to be better, you know, whether it's helping you to give you the information I need or just helping ourselves by trying to open up, what can we do to be better?
2: Preparing for the visit. So when I say that, I mean, you know, knowing what you're coming to see, you know, see that provider for. Um, Another kind of misfortune in healthcare is that everything is so compartmentalized. So nowadays, you know, you go in and you tell your primary that you're having a stomach issue and they may give you like one visit to try something out and then they send you to gastroenterology. Um, but, But when you are ready to go to that appointment, whatever that is, you know, everybody basically has a smartphone. Or a tablet. Go to your notes section. Type the question that you want to know. Like, why does my stomach hurt after I eat hot Cheetos? Whatever. Put that question down. You know, why can't I lose lose weight if I work out five days a week? Because, you know, whatever. Whatever that is. And then when you're in that visit, pull up that note, you know, that's on your phone. Because even I, knowing what I know, having the experience that I have, when I'm in an appointment, one, I'm already ready to get out. When I go in, I'm ready to leave. <laughs> Any questions? Nope. Think I'm good. Like, even though, like, you know, I know questions to ask, unless there's legitimately something that I'm just, like, have a pressing concern, I'm even, like, mm, can I just go? Like, can you check off that I've been here, that I've done what I was supposed to do so I can leave? Um but just being prepared is one of the biggest things. Um, if you are, you know, someone who's taking medications, um, bring your medications with you or take pictures of your la- of your labels. You know, you say, oh yeah, I need that pill refill. You know, which pill? The orange pill, I don't you know. I don't one, <laughs> you know, so if you don't have the bottles, if you don't have the bottles, just take a picture of the label so that we know what the medication is, what the uh, dosage is and things of that nature. Um, also, you know, if you have someone who um, is very involved in your care, like your spouse or your mom, um, and you're comfortable with that, I would encourage you at least once to bring that person on, well, you know, with COVID, everything has been kind of restricted, but at least once to bring that person with you to meet your provider, because a lot of times the wife will say, well, he's always complaining about da-da-da-da-da, you know, and he's like, no, he has no complaints. And we actually get some useful information from that. But like I said, at least once, I don't want to talk to your mom Merck, your whole appointment every time I see you. OK, I need to talk to you. But it is helpful to at least meet that person who's like most involved in your care, because sometimes they can give us some feedback that the patient may be holding, like, you know, not giving us. Um, And plus, like I said, it's a relationship. So you're going to be seeing me every two months, every three months. I mean, you see me like four or five times a year. Like we basically friends, you know. So introduce your wife to me so that she can see who you're seeing and she can say, did he tell you about this, this and this? And I go, he hasn't mentioned that. And then we have a whole other conversation. So those are some of the top things like being prepared for the visit, you know, with your questions, put it in your phone. Um, your medications and then, you know, bringing on that kind of support person to at least introduce into your healthcare team because it is a team.
3: I think um, the thing that a patient needs to do is be a part of the health portal. Every clinic, majority of every clinic um, has a health portal. Um, You're on your phone, this is the age of the internet. Everybody's on their phone 24-7, all the time. You can find anything you want, just like Keisha said. But we don't spend the time to go into our portal to look at our labs that came up, to look at um, the blood work or x-rays or to look at our last visit. What do I need? To, you know, like you said, when I leave, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. OK, well, what did you say again? I can't remember to your health order, You can look, at back, look back at your back, back. Excuse me. You can look back at your. Summary visit for your last appointment. And when you look at your summary visit, it tells what are the things that you should be working on. Um, Also, you can message your healthcare provider. Um, You can ask questions in between your appointments that are free. You know, those questions can be answered. If it's something that warrants more concern or needs to be evaluated, then you can go back in for another appointment. But majority of the time, you can get a lot of questions answered just going through that health portal in the message section. Especially, was I supposed to take this twice a day? was I supposed to take this pill once a day? Or was I supposed to take it for seven days or 10 days? And then you can just go in the portal and ask those questions. I know me for me personally, um, I was not checking my portal and I should have been checking my portal. I knew better. And um, when I started, I realized I had gotten labs and I had never got any, you know, callback about my labs. And and then I was like, man, I didn't get anything back, back about my labs. And so I was tired, I was fatigued, I had um, muscle pain, body aches, and I had everything, but I pushed it to the side, again, from my previous conversations, being a mom and everything else, I just pushed my health to the back burner, um, and then I looked at my portal, and I realized that my vitamin D, which would be like, I think, 36 to 100, was two, was two, literally, the level was two, and I'm like, no one called me. The nurse did not call me. The doctor did not call me. The lab did not call me. No one called it except me. And I feel like as patients, you have to be your first advocate. You have to go in and make sure that your stuff is done. Um, So I called my nurse and I'm like, hey, my vitamin D is low. She gets on the computer, you know, starts chatting. It is. It is is low, right? You know, we need to go ahead and get you set on some uh, medication. And, you know, thankfully I got on the medication. I felt a whole lot better. Um, I was more energized and didn't have body aches and didn't think I was having fiber fibromyalgia or anything else, you know, that was going on. But I'm thinking, you know, this is the end of the world. I'm sick, blah, blah, blah. But I would have kept having those bad thoughts. I would have kept going through the pain. I would have kept just not, you know, I might have seen Tiffany went into that predicament where I just let it go bad. And then I'm like, why do I need to be taking this vitamin D? So then I started looking it up. I started researching. It also is linked to high blood pressure, which I struggle with. It's also linked, linked to cardiovascular disease. It's linked to um, colon cancer. These are things I don't wanna have just because I didn't take my vitamin D, something simple like that could have made it something monumental later on in life. So check your health portal, look at your labs and stay proactive with your, with your appointments.
1: And then one one last thing to add on is to encourage, and. Merck, you kind of talked on this with you just not ask, asking questions like over this years. We got to speak up um, yeah. with concerns like there's always another option. There's always an alternative, right? So if, if I'm put on a medication for this and it's just not working, it's not agreeing on how effects, effects, whatever they may be, don't stop taking it. Just bring that up. Like, okay, this is this is not, there's, it's not like an all B. y'all. There's always something else that can be done. So, I just wanna encourage everybody to speak up, Um, right? Like don't just stop taking medicine because you're having certain side effects. Like there's always other options that you can explore with your provider, but we don't know if you don't say something. Like I can't look at you and tell, you know, automatically tell that you're having an issue with the medicine. You have to tell me that. And then we can kind of move forward and figure out what else we can do, but you've gotta speak up. Um, And a lot of patients don't, I found that people don't, don't do that. And I don't, you know, I don't know, They would just rather stop taking the medicine. Whatever, whatever the medicine's for, I'm just not gonna take it. And that that leads y'all to come to see me and we don't want to do
3: that. Yeah. I think a lot of that comes from like when patients they just think, oh, the doctor knows what he's doing. So like I'll ask my mom, so what medication are you on? Is it working? Well, I don't think so. Well, why don't you tell him? Like you said, I didn't want to say anything, because he knows what he's doing.
1: I mean, that might be the case. Like what works for Tanil might not work for Keisha. Right. Um, but I don't know that. You know what I mean? So you've got to say something so that I can try to do what works best for you. Each mm-hmm. patient is tailored differently. Medications work different, for, especially for Black people. What works for white patients doesn't necessarily work as well for Black patients and vice versa, especially when it comes to blood pressure. So you've got to speak up. Like people have to be proactive, and self-advocate for themselves. Otherwise, we don't know how best to help you.
0: I mean, that's right. I mean, it wasn't until, I don't know, I, I feel like I was probably talking to Tanil and she fussed me one time about like me taking my medicine. She asked me like, well, what medicine are you taking? I was like, mm, I don't know the name of it, but I take it every day. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, Little things like knowing what yeah. medicine, you like knowing the name, knowing the dosage, like little things like that. I was taking Synthroid for 10 years. The same thing. Doc asked me, how you feeling? How you good? You know, your levels are normal. How you feeling? I'm good. I'm fine. What are you taking? I don't know. It's like, well, you may be able to lower your dosage or we may need to up your dosage. But I'm going to have to go look. And that's cutting into that precious amount of time that I got. That could be something else because you know, my thyroidism led to me having issues with sleep, you know, and I didn't realize it till you know, I've been dealing with this, I was 12. I didn't realize I was 25. And he was like, How you been? I was like, I haven't been sleeping that well. I was like, How long? 10 years. (laughs) And he was like, Well, what do you mean? I was like, I mean, I've been taking my medicine, I was like, my level's been normal. I had to get on an entire different treatment plan. So we can address and do some A, I guess A B testing, you know, for lack of the actual term, to figure out what's working and what's not working, and what combination of medicines do I need to take to be able to one handle my thyroid levels and two not disrupt my sleep. So mm-hmm. it's that's that's it, right? It took me ten out ten years of sleep, ten years of sleep lost because I ain't saying that. So that's, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you know, that's that's mm-hmm. another thing too is. I know if, if anything has, you know, went left, I have, you know, a community of people, um, you know, like y'all who, you know, if, if it really gets bad, I can ask questions, I can kind of go to, it's not as, you know, you, Sunil, you talked about like using the portals and stuff. I had an, um, a client that was a, a new clinic, healthcare and urgent care, and we had to try to, you know, one, market this um, new portal that they were using for patients to be able to keep up with their stuff. And one of the main complaints that we got kind of in some of the, you know, UX user reports was, I don't know my login. I didn't ask anybody to try to renew my login. I was just going to wait till the next time I came. And by that point, you know, whatever you were dealing with, whatever instructions, whatever was kind of passed along to you has now been lost, you know, in, you know, in this portal for three months that you had access to but never doubled back and checked. So, you know, that is one of the areas that I think uh, we definitely need to kind of lean into more as, as just regular folks, is just being taken care about, caring enough to care about the thing, you know, that we need to know to help you guys better kind of take care of us. But to pivot just a little bit, you know, I wanted to kind of dive into some issues uh, that are specific to women and black women kind of in healthcare relative to kind of disparities in the health, implicit bias. Um, kind of these discriminatory things that can be systemic you know that can be unintentional especially with all the things that we have kind of going on in women's health now women's reproductive and sexual health and what these states are trying to do. Um, One thing I wanted to ask you guys I see the handshakes Uh, one thing I wanted to ask y'all just relative to women's health what are some of the areas when you're you're dealing with men you're dealing with folks of other races, other backgrounds. What are some of the things that you guys kind of notice kind of on both sides of the coin relative to black women's health and some of the challenges and issues specific to black women that they face in healthcare?
2: People listening. So when, as a black woman, When you do seek care or you're in the healthcare setting and you do report something, whatever it is, having the actual provider to listen to you and then take that information and do something with it. So typically, when I'm whenever I do have to be a patient, which you know, everybody hates to be a patient, I don't like go in and say, you know. I'm Dr. Lakeisha Rowe and I have, I'm a nurse practitioner. I've been a nurse for this many years and this is what's wrong with me. I just slide in and I like go through the patient experience. And unfortunately, I'm disappointed nine times out of 10 with my interaction. Um, yeah. When I say this is what I'm experiencing and they kind of revert straight to the, the least, the least likely thing on the totem pole, right? That like the thing that I'm not worried about, you know, if I thought that my heart rate was fast because I drank, you know, a double espresso from Starbucks. I wouldn't have came to the ER. Right. So when I'm there, you know, how much coffee do you drink? How do you even know I drink coffee? Like, why is that the question? You know, having people to actually listen to black women when they do speak, when they do report that they've experienced something, you know, um, as black women, um, Typically, we have a higher incidence of things like uterine fibroids. Um, so, if a black woman says, "You know, oh my, my periods are very heavy. They're on three months out of the, you know, three weeks out of the month," and then the doctor's like, "You want to take the birth control, maybe stop them?" And like, "No, I don't want to take hormones." Well, you may just have long periods. Like, no, you don't. You don't go from this. You want to do this or nothing. There are so many things in between, and doing diagnostic tests to find the problem. You know, just because someone has dealt with the problem for any given time, it's not like, well, you know, maybe that's just you. That's just you. Go search. Go get, you know, get a test. Ask, you know, black women when you're there, ask for the ultrasound. You never had one. You're having pelvic pain. you're, You're bleeding most of the month. You know, all of that. You know, ask, have you had an ultrasound? Yeah, I did. Like five years ago, six years ago. I, I've, I've had experience with a patient who had a, a normal pap. She missed one the next year because she had a new job, had new insurance. So she was like a year late getting a pap and had like stage three cervical cancer, normal mm-hmm. cervical cancer. So things can change quickly, even though people like oh, it's highly unlikely that there's a problem if you've had an ultrasound five years ago. No. What? So having people to actually listen to you when you do report that there's something wrong and doing the work to find the problem. And a lot of times we have to say, I haven't had an ultrasound. not like one. And if they go, you don't need one, then, you know, this has been like on social media and stuff like that. Then, you know, you say, well, can you document my record that you're not going to order my ultrasound and typically Mm -hmm. go, I'll do the ultrasounds, which it shouldn't be that way. But a lot of times it is. Um, and there is a difference, you know, between getting an ultrasound every, you know, every month, like that's highly, probably not necessary. But when you have a problem and you've never had it evaluated completely, there are a lot of things like Tiffany said that can be done. If one test didn't find anything, there's still other things that can be done. I mean, we'd have stories of patients who've been through different hoops and that last thing at that, that last doctor that they saw was the one who found it and three people missed it. So... I think one of the biggest challenges as a black woman is when you do finally say, "This is what I'm experiencing. I'm worried about this." Having them go really listening, taking it in, and then working with you to find the solution instead of brushing it off like it's not like it's nothing.
3: That's really good. I um, I'm gonna pivot off of that. So the the part about have like listening. So my mom went. It goes back to a little bit about implicit biases. So, majority of the time with providers, healthcare providers, um, their focus, especially, there's a difference between nurse practitioners and medical doctors. We have a different way of how we approach our patients and how we treat our patients. However, um, a lot of times, based on experiences, that's what usually what happens with implicit bias. And because they're taught that the black community or a black person is has a higher risk of hypertension, has a higher risk of diabetes, has this. They start to put these black people into labels. So every time they see a black person, they think, oh, every black person has hypertension issues. Every black person has cardiovascular disease. Every black person, you know, older that's in an older age category has obesity. They start to label that, even though that's not what you're supposed to do, you're supposed to just know, use that as a denotation for your care, knowing that this is a risk factor for that person. And it's also based on other many factors, including like family, genes, your family, your genes, your, the way you eat, the way you do everything, but they start to label us. Well, my mom goes into the um, the doctor's office. She does great, blah, blah, blah. I dropped her purse the other day, like not the other day right now, but like a couple of years ago. So then I go in her purse and I'm like, mom, what is this? Why are you taking blood pressure medicine, right? And she's like, oh, the doctor put me on blood pressure medicine because I have high blood pressure. You don't have high blood pressure. What are you talking about? So I'm looking at her and she's like, yeah, my blood pressure's been high. So, of course, I go get the blood pressure monitor. Her blood pressure looks good, of course, because she's on medication. And I'm like, mom, you walk five miles a day. He says, well, oh, it's because I'm, he says it's because I'm um, overweight. And black people that are overweight have high blood pressure. I said, excuse me? So I'm like, no. This doesn't make any sense because my mom eats right. She works out all the time. And her stress level is completely non-existent. So I'm like, well, you have high blood pressure. So maybe it's like, you know, something else. I'm like thinking. So I go to this appointment and the doctor just just dismays me. Doesn't want to answer any of my questions. Doesn't want my mom gives her, you know, the capability to say, hey, my daughter has control. thought I'm like, no, I want x rays done. My mom's leg's been hurting. She she has numbness in her right leg. She can't move. Nothing else. I had to literally step into her appointment. We found out later she has a herniated disc and three discs. Three discs are herniated. And she has about 20% of perfusion through her spinal cord. The orthopedic surgeon is saying, we need to do something today. And they get her in for her appointment. And then now she's feeling better. She's off blood pressure medicine. She didn't need blood pressure medicine. She needed more of an evaluation of asking her why her leg's hurting. Her leg had been hurting for the past two years and no one had caught that. All they focused on the fact that she was obese and then they focused on the fact that she's black. Okay. So she's black. She's obese. They didn't look at any other factors of she walks five miles a day. She's lost so much weight in this amount of time. She's healthier than the norm. All her other labs are, are normal. So what was the issue? So I feel like, as patients, you have to speak, and as Black women, we have to speak up even more, like Tiffany said. We have to speak up. And I think implicit biases is the worst part of Black women's health. Um, and it's just, it's just frustrating. I mean, I've had it with myself, you know, being in the hospital, first thing I got asked by nurses, when are you gonna sign your WIC papers? Didn't ask me anything else, and ask me, hi, what's your name? hi you know what do you do for a living do you have insurance or how's the baby doing just literally walk in and asked, am I going to sign your whip papers that was her assumption because everyone else that she had taken care of for the day was black and they had whip paper so I obviously had whip papers to sign for my child um I think the implicit biases are the things that's going to hurt us and things that are going to cause inferior health care
1: I mean that is that is a thing that is often in inferior healthcare. And, you know, I work for a, a, a pretty large service. It's about 40 physicians and probably about 30 nurse practitioners. Um, and maybe seven or eight of us are Black, Like, and that's like out of, what, what 80 people? I um, mean, just like sitting around the office, just hearing what other providers say or how they respond to pages or how they respond to requests from different patients. They're not intentionally... Being racist or um, being biased, but it's the unconscious bias that's been passed right. for years. Um, and without, and I don't know if if these these clinics and these medical institutions need to do further training on implicit bias and what we can do to help with health care disparities. But people have to really see it and reevaluate. My my. Um, my uh, medical director is African American right now, and she sent a sent an email out um, months ago. I don't remember what happened. Something happened that triggered. You know, the racial climate is just ridiculous right now. But something happened during the past election that kind of triggered this email. Um, and she sent it basically saying, "You know, we all have. Even as a black provider, I have bias. You know, towards that I don't really think about." All the time, um, but we all have it. We're all programmed a certain way, and you really have to sit and intentionally try to unprogram um, how you see Black people or how you see Black women, women in general, just patients overall. Like we need better training from the beginning, from nursing school, medical school, um, just like from the ground up about how we can work through these this bias that's kind of important. Passed down. I was reading some article, um, and this kind of goes into Black women and how pain is perceived and how we have this higher pain tolerance compared mm-hmm. to other patients. Um, and it was a physician from like an old school physician that went to medical school like in the 50s and 60s. And he was basically saying when a Black woman came in complaining of um, pelvic pain, they automatically thought a STD due to this thought that black women were um, promiscuous or just kind of lived a, a lifestyle that led to that. When mm-hmm. white com- women came in with the same complaint, they thought endometriosis or, or something other than STDs. And that that was in medical school training. Like that was taught to the medical school um, class and that stuff has been passed down years, I mean, decades and decades. And that's what we've got to rewire and it's going to take a long time, but I think A fortunate part of this, I think institutions are finally realizing that there is an issue. Mm -hmm. Um, I think we're a long way away from fixing it, but I think we're finally recognizing that Black women are dying, you know, having babies and dying three times more than white women. Mm -hmm. Black women are having all these issues, or Black people in general, and I think it's finally being recognized, or we're speaking up enough, and we haven't been doing that. Um, So I think us being vocal, and just that Black women, if you're not Satisfied with your care, just being vocal about what you're experiencing and bringing it to the forefront will be the thing that kind of helps change. Right. Um, and we haven't had that for a long time.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, it's one of the things, too, even, um, you know, when I was doing kind of market research, uh, when I was working um, with that clinic and looking how to kind of uh, best reach, uh, you know, the minority communities that were in the area, what were well, kind of the areas of concern. Um, I kind of had to put like my social sciences hat on. And I think that's one of the things that's been done while the conversation has kind of been a little bit more in vogue. Now you kind of hear discussions more is there is this kind of interdisciplinary kind of approach to it now where you have social scientists, you know, and, and sociologists working with, uh, you know, medical schools, nursing schools to talk about some of the things that we address in all the other different areas of kind of the black uh, disenfranchised minority experience and taking these same disciplines, these same studies and and showing that because it is systemic, there's no area of life that it doesn't touch, except this is the one that's, you know, most directly life and death for people. And it's, it hasn't received as much attention because, you know, it's, again, to, to be interdisciplinary in that kind of way, to have that kind of intersectionality, that one has to be amongst, you know, academia in the medical community that, okay, we are doing something wrong. And, you know, I've even kind of heard in conversations in the past with, with past providers, like, I don't think I think like that, or no, I don't, I don't discriminate against black people. I don't discriminate against, um, you know, Latina women. I don't discriminate against anybody. That's not what I'm doing. And I was like, but, but, but that's the whole point of kind of, you know, implicit bias. You don't know you're doing it. You're acting upon things that you've just that have been ingrained in you over time and you have to unlearn that stuff. And I think that's the area where I think the most bang, um, we, we can see the most growth and the most shift. But as we kind of move along with that, it is something um, digging a little bit more into kind of Black women's health that I want to touch on uh, because, you know, unfortunately, you know, I've seen and experienced it in a few cases uh, in my personal life. I'm sure you all have too in some capacity as we look at um, kind of Black maternity, Black motherhood, Black morbidity. And, um, you know, through the things that I've kind of researched in the past and things I've kind of done in preparation and in conversation with you, with Jasmine prior, is looking at these numbers um, and how great, as crazy as they are across all the areas of healthcare when it comes to Black women, when we talk about pregnancy, when we talk about prenatal health, postpartum health, holistic postpartum health it's almost non-existent in a lot of capacities. And there's so many stories, whether it's, you know, before birth, doing labor and delivery, after um, that these black women are suffering physically, mentally, emotionally, and the resources aren't there. The insurance companies aren't there. You know, employers aren't providing the flexibility that's kind of necessary. It's seemed like this focus has been shifted so heavily on kind of um, you know infant mor- um, mortality and, and infant health, and as soon as the mother, I think the it was it was a um, it was a, I think it was like a Harvard Business Review I was reading, and they did like a video, and uh, one of the women that was speaking um, was a doctor, and she was saying we treat you know women, black women, like candy wrappers when it's when it's go- when it's kind of regard to pregnancy, we want to protect the candy. We want to make sure that the candy doesn't get hurt. But as soon as the candy is out, we enjoy the candy and we discard the wrapper. And it's yeah, it, it was a gym. You know, she Josh, that was heavy. But you know, that speaks to this whole canary in the coal mine, you know, kind of thing where it's like, all right, if we focus, if we shift the focus, and I know this this some folks may not want to hear this, if we shift the focus away from and I don't want to say completely, but shift more of the focus away from kind of infant health and focus on healthy moms, healthy black moms, healthy pregnancies, and providing support for mothers after they've given birth, both physical support, emotional support, mental support. I feel like that only does work to enrich the life of the child and of the family because you have a healthy mom. And you know, I'm you know, you all have children and you know are dealing with you know, small kids and having to transition back into the workforce and probably what's not enough time while you're still trying to be a functional mom, you have to be a, you know, a functional human. And it's it, it just seems like there's not enough focus on that. Um, so I wanted you guys to speak to a little bit, you know, around, you know, care, around pregnancy, you know, prenatal, labor and delivery, and um and postpartum and what are some of the areas that you felt seen and noticed where you see gaps and what are some ways that women black women can better and the communities around the black women you know us included how can we better help support um you guys as you you know go through this body changing life changing emotional you know you know you know just it's just just the whole thing you guys speak to some of that
3: I know I can. So, um, I actually think that um, kind of like what Keisha was saying about preparing, we need to prepare for pregnancy. We need to prepare for postpartum. We need to read up about what's going to happen after I have the baby. What should it look like when this occurs? What should it look like, you know? Body-wise, how should I be healing? What are my thought process? What kind of help am I going to have? Because I feel like, I don't know about y'all ladies, but I felt like, did nobody tell me what was going to happen after I had this baby? And I was kind of like in a world where like, I got to wear this? For how long? And this is coming out of me? For how long? You know, like you're thinking like, nobody told me about this. You know, like, oh, wait, I really don't sleep. And they say, sleep in the baby sleeps, when, when do you do anything else? Like you don't get your mind right for this. And I, um, this last pregnancy, unfortunately, I had a little PTSD from um, trauma that I had with my first pregnancy. So my second pregnancy, I was already heightened. And then I um, started hemorrhaging and I told the nurse and she didn't believe me. And I was like, I, I need to see the doctor. And they finally brought the doctor in and he's like, she's hemorrhaging. We need to take her to the ICU now. And all of my head, going back to what we talked about before, being a mom, I literally asked my husband, do you have the insurance policy? Do you know what it, where it is? Do you know the password? Do you know the company name? I'm thinking of everything I need to do to make sure my family's taken care of because this might be my last time with my family. And then that, I'm now nervous every time something happened to me, I get nervous. And then I started getting nervous even more. Then I realized I never had a postpartum visit never had a post- no one called me for a postpartum visit you're supposed to get one you know that one visit you get
4: and something.
3: yeah and I and I um I did I started to realize I'm really irritable I'm really like freaking out I'm thinking about things that are not shouldn't be happening and that's when I realized I had postpartum anxiety I had to diagnose myself and that should not be the case whatsoever um I luckily have family support. I seek therapy, which helps me tremendously. I do self-care, things that put me back into balance for me. But women, Black women, we need to be prepared for that. You know, that's one thing, um, postpartum anxiety, postpartum depression, postpartum psychosis, it's not racist. There's no implicit bias. There's no racism there. It affects every single woman. It can affect every single woman. And I've never experienced anxiety before, so to have this, then it brings on more trauma, more PTSD, more anxiety. Because I, you know, I've, I've known people who have taken their life, and it put me in a in a tailspin. And I know to that part, and I don't want another black woman to experience that. But I wish someone had talked to me more about it. I thought, oh, I've never had anxiety. Oh, I've never had depression. Oh, I've never had any mental health issues. So I'm not going to have postpartum anxiety. You're not going to have postpartum depression. But I did. And, it was, and it's it been traumatic for us. It's, It's been, I've had to change my whole way of thinking, my whole life. I don't really talk about it with other people. I, I'm not afraid to talk about it. But I think more people need to talk about it. So they know that they're not alone. We're not alone we have to go through these feelings. We, It's okay. But there's ways to be to be helped. And I know that through my company that I work for, I have therapy. It's an option through my insurance. That was something that I prepared before I started reading, you know, nonchalantly. Oh, I got therapy. Okay, blah, blah. Okay, I also get an attorney with. Okay, I'll get this. But I think we've got to be a little bit more proactive and looking at things ahead of time um, because everyone's not forfeited that luxury and everybody's not forfeited to know that they're diagnosed either. Um, And I want to say, take, you know, make sure you go to your postpartum appointment. Make sure you have people who know you and know when something's not right. Um, And make sure that you have an outlet for therapy, regardless if you are diagnosed with postpartum um, anxiety, depression, or psychosis, because postpartum is its own fifth trimester. It is it is something totally different. Your hormones are not the same. You're not the same person, mentally, physically. You're you're you're, you're no longer a new person. You're no longer that person. You're a new person, and it's something that you have to adjust to. And I think that everybody should go through therapy during that time, um, whether you know it's through a psychologist, your phone appointment, one on one. But we need to talk, and we need to make sure that mental health and Black women's health. imperative we need to make sure that it is something that is done frequently and um, you know we need need to speak more about it and be more transparent Um, because that friend that I lost I wish she would have known that I was going through something similar or we could have bonded or talked about it and I think that we never know what we're going through might save someone else so
2: I definitely agree um, with Sunil. Um, a lot of people, when you say postpartum, you know, they think about that like six to eight weeks after you have a baby. And postpartum period essentially is all the way up, technically, up until the, you know, the child is a, is a year old. Um, maternal suicide actually kills more women in the first year than... Hemorrhaging, then you know preeclampsia, eclampsia—that everybody you know is so afraid of. Then those big complications, yes, they're big and they're bad. Everybody knows about those. But uh, you know, maternal suicide because of postpartum depression, anxiety, psychosis, actually kills more women you know, mm-hmm. each year. And um, one of the things that Tanil said is, you know, being prepared for pregnancy. You know, it's different than. Not like we, we want to get pregnant, so we're going to do this. But reading up on it, you know, what does that look like? Not just what's, you know, what fruit does the baby, what size is the baby this week, but what happens in my body? What happens to me? And then knowing that postpartum depression is not just you will lay in the bed all the time, you know. Um, with my first son, which was nine years ago, you know, postpartum depression. Yes. Knew what that was. I was already a nurse. I'd already been an ER nurse for many years, but like, I didn't even know that like postpartum anxiety, like a separate diagnosis. And that was like, as a nurse, as a registered nurse. And then I knew more about it going into my, into having my second son. And um, I realized that I did have postpartum anxiety. You know, people are like, oh, that second child, they just raised themselves. I feel like I'm more hyper like vigilant. I'm more afraid with my second son than I was even with my first. Um, putting my finger under his nose, like every time I have like a camera, I, even now he's almost a year, like watching him when he takes naps. Um, I'm more like, like my nerves are just not like the cool, calm, like, ah, oh, it'd be all right. I just don't have that. I didn't, I don't have that with him. Um, and like to also said, I didn't have a, I didn't have a postpartum visit and I had a cesarean. This was a repeat cesarean. I actually attempted to have a VBAC, which people hear about a vaginal birth after having a cesarean, cesarean nine, nine years ago. And I attempted to have a VBAC. I had a doula this time around. I mean, I really had a plan this time and it just didn't work out. And I had a repeat cesarean. Luckily the cesarean itself was essentially, um, not event, you know, uneventful and my recovery was rough, was more rough this time. Um, just because, you know, you got, you have a second surgery in the same place is typically harder, but, um, the day that I had my appointment scheduled, the day before, I tested positive for COVID. So I called and canceled my appointment, and they didn't call me back. I didn't call them back. And my son's all He'll be a year, October 13th. And I haven't seen my the person who sliced me open and stitched me up since she did that to me. Um, the office hasn't called. And typically, they'll call like, oh, it's time for your yearly follow-up. I haven't gotten a call for that or anything. Um, so thanks be to God that I am fine. You know, my health wise, my I healed without any problems. Um, everything else is kind of picked up and, you know, kind of returning, returning to normal levels, but not normal. But I'm still within that window. And so going back to what I first mentioned, you know, this blood pressure issue that I'm having, is it? Because everybody in my family has blood pressure, is it because I'm stressed? Is it postpartum? Technically, I'm still in the cloud of postpartum. Is it post COVID? I have, I've had COVID. You know, is it? Oh, I got the vaccine. Like, you, you have so many questions that I can't even answer as a an experienced registered nurse, trauma nurse. I'm a nursing instructor. I teach at nursing school. I have my doctorate, and I have questions that I can't answer for myself. So um, the biggest thing for me as a black pregnant person was the fear of both of us coming home together both of us coming home period you know because sometimes babies have to stay and whatever but I want both of us to come home and i it, it, it's such a sad thing to know that as black women you have to take stock of that before you even plan to get pregnant mm-hmm. you know there are there are women who have conversations like I mean I really want a baby but Black women dying, y'all. I'm scared. I'm scared.
4: That's it. That's
2: that's it. Uh, It's really rough. And where I had my son, there were no black midwives.
3: Mm
2: -hmm. Um, My doula was two hours away from me. She was black. I had to find one two hours away. Um, There were no black. There were no black lactation consultants. And I never could even get a lactation consultant, even through the county health department, because they never returned my phone calls. And you're just on an island. You're literally on an island, and or you feel like you are. Mm-hmm. And depending on where you live and things of that nature, like Tanil said, your accessibility, your insurance, you know, your financial status, your access to resources. You could literally be on an island with no help. Or you can be there with a lot of help and still not be able to access it. Um, whether you think nobody will understand you, or sometimes people don't understand you, and that's a whole different conversation. But um, it's very difficult. I mean, even like I said, now I'm not even a year, and I'm I'm not I'm not the same Keisha I was after I had my first son. I'm. The Keisha that went to UA, I don't know where she is, but <laughs> I mean, we're not the same. Um, but we have to acknowledge that first. And then those around us have to acknowledge that and accept it and act accordingly. Because I think that's another transition, you know, that that's not talked about also. Yeah.
0: Good point, Keisha. Good point. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you mentioned something there, like just the being on an island. Um, And Keisha, you even like jumped a little bit deeper into when we talked about like kind of socioeconomic access and being able to have access to, you know, the right kinds of insurance to, you know, that you can have, you know, therapy as an option. And, you know, we look at, you know, some of these numbers and how disproportionate they are kind of based on location, like you were saying, where you may not, you may have access to a resource, but that resource may not be, you know, in a, in a proximity to where you can actually take advantage of it, or you could be in a situation where you don't have any of this. And I think that's one of the areas where, you know, in healthcare and insurance um, and kind of like benefits, compensation, when we start talking about employers, I think there needs to be a heightened focus um, because I, it, it really does feel like the emphasis is on labor and delivery, right? And once you kind of get past that window, there should be, res- I mean, just the simple blunt trauma to, to your body, there should be therapy, like just like just that, like just that, let alone, you know, you get into, um, you know, the hormones and, you know, how that, that can affect your, your, your emotions, your mentality, how you kind of approach doing all the kind of stuff. So it's a greater systemic issue um, that that's out there uh, that we have to kind of continue advocating for. We have to keep kind of having, you know, these intersectional conversations about how we can do it. But, you know, unfortunately, it always feels like we kind of fall back on the laurel of love. we got to take care of ourselves because, you know, nobody else will. Systems won't. They failed us. And we have to kind of be on top of it. And, um, you know, it, it's, it, it sucks that it has to be that way. But the best thing that we can do is try to best educate and prepare and share information and have open community, open dialogue, open discussion about this kind of stuff, because in the spirit of us protecting us, that's all we got. That's, that's literally all we got. And I know for me, you know, I don't have any kids, but, you know, even one of the things with, in, in consideration with me, like, all right, I the side, you know, I want to have kids, you know, me and my partner, we, you know, jump into this, What it, what, like, what do I have to do? You know I mean? Like, how can I be a better like advocate? You know, I, I, one of my partners, he, you know, went through a similar situation with his wife. She dealt with postpartum depression and like, I would be on the phone with him, like kind of coaching him up, like, you know, bro, like, he's like, I'm, I don't know what to do. I'm just trying to do things, you know, trying to make the day easy. I'm trying to lighten the load. And there's even a, a feeling of helplessness, you know, with him being as attentive as he knew how to be where it was just kind of out of his control, but he i was like, you just got to kind of be there. But, um, I think one of the areas too, that, you know, and you all touched on it in some capacity about having community, um, uh, about having friends, family, you know, that you can kind of lean on and support, you know, what, as a, as a friend, um, I, if I have, you know, a friend that's going through pregnancy as a, as a family member that's, that's seen this and, you know, probably going to happen again, you know, this, the COVID babies, I look, no shade the COVID babies been popping up. Like it's, it's been a thing, but, um, <laughs> but how, how, as a, as going through this, as moms, like take the provider part of it as moms, what kind of support, like how, how in the ways can the people in your lives best fill that gap for you best kind of stand, you know, kind of in place for you as as the women and the moms of the house who are always kind of managing things, kind of keeping everything afloat, how can your family members and friends best be there for you in situations like this? Like, what can we do, if anything at all, to try to help, um, you know, mitigate some of this stuff?
3: Just be there, I mean, to listen. I know I've shared my postpartum anxiety with you um, I know um, Keisha, me and Keisha talked about it before, but just having that sounding board, you know, to literally like, if I'm going through something and I need an event, I can tell you without the judgment. Or um, if I'm saying, hey, I'm having postpartum anxiety and right I'm having anxiety attack right now. Like I need something, having the group of people just that, you know, Will be there, to be honest. Yeah. Uh, because we everybody has stuff in their life they're going through. And you can't just like stop for everything. But I know that if I call any of y'all three, you're going to listen to me or you're going to be there for me. Like I don't have to worry about that. And um, that's what helped me as a mom, um, to be honest. Um, just having a sports system and humor. I got to have humor. I mean, that's the only way I get through it.
1: That's the only way. Keisha touched on it, um, but you you need a few people close enough that are engaged enough to know when you're not right. I think that because um, you're 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 like nonstop from sunup to sundown, and and I didn't have time to even sit in my own emotions. Like I was like your mind is constantly on one hundred. Right, It's like you're doing one task and you're thinking about the next before you even finish what you're trying to do. Um, so have, even if it's not a spouse, like your mom or your best friend, having somebody that's in enough with your personality, your, your offs, your ons, your ins, your outs to say, hey, Tiffany, you don't really sound okay today. Are you okay? Do we need to go see somebody? Is there anything I can do? You know, I have friends who like door dash me food the simplest thing like that was like a load off my shoulders because it's like, I don't have to think about eating dinner time, like what I'm gonna cook for dinner. So it's little stuff like that, but you need people paying enough attention when when a red flag goes up, cause you're too busy even noticing. Like I didn't even know what day it was, them first three months. um, I, Yeah, so somebody needs to be close enough that's in tuned enough to know something's not right. And can and can point it out to you so that you can, if you need help, you can get the help you need. I think that's very important. Whether it be, like I said, a spouse, a best friend, a parent, coworker, whatever it is, um, somebody's got to be. Cl- you need to let somebody in enough so they can they can be. And that that's one of the key things. You can't try to be superwoman because um, you can't do it by yourself. Like it's just, there's just no way. So you've gotta let your guard down and you've gotta let somebody close enough to see you struggle and to see you a hot mess because you're gonna be a hot mess. But that's the only way that you're gonna get through it is with the support um, system. And they've gotta be able to get to you when you need them to. 100% agree. Um,
2: I just wanna back yeah. off a of thing really quick. Um, and I, I don't know that this is a black, like a black woman problem but as women we really have to not live our lives for the purpose of the timeline um being an instagram mom being an instagram wife where you and your husband got a match every time you go out and you know you got to do this you got to do that your child, you know, they got to have a certain type of nursery. You got to cut the sandwich up in a hundred pieces and spell their name in the bread. Like that type of stuff will literally drive you crazy. Yeah. No comparison. No comparison. We fall into that more than we admit. Mm -hmm. And we also distance ourselves or wall ourselves off from, like Tiffany said, the people who really know you. And we become this person like, you don't know what I got going on. Like, I want to cut this sandwich up in a hundred pieces and it's stressing you out, you know? So like, you know, if, if Tamil were to say like, Keisha, why, you know, why both of your boys, why they match everywhere they go? You know, it's one thing to say, oh, it's super cute, but that's not my personality to do that. So if I'm like having anxiety, trying to find matching outfits so we can take a picture for Instagram and it's stressing me out if I don't find outfits that match and Tamil says something to me, she knows it's because I'm like doing the most for me. Right. And sometimes you need that person to kind of like stop you and go, I'm tripping because like Tiffany said, you literally are lost in a whirlwind and you're exhausted. You're if you are getting sleep it's often broken sleep, um, whether you're breastfeeding or not, the baby has to eat. So if you're not breastfeeding, you still got a bottle. Feed them. Even if you, you swap off with your spouse, when they get up, that wakes you up a little bit. That messes up your sleep. And that's those first few months, even when your husband has the baby, you're like, you, you okay? You got it? You're like, you're just checking it. So you're still not sleeping. Um, when your mom or somebody comes and has the baby, you're still like, you all right? He all right? You still not sleeping. With my first one, I didn't. Like, I, I remember I didn't do that. With Landon, I'm like, who wants to keep Landon overnight? Anybody, anybody. Because <laughs> I want to sleep. Because if he's, if he's with me, I'm not going to sleep. But if I go to a hotel, I can sleep all night because I like, he's not here. Mm-hmm. But it's like you just have to acknowledge that you are getting lost in whatever that whirlwind is and allow those people that you know love you and have your best interests at heart. They're not trying to compare what type of mom you are to what type of mom your mom was or what type of mom your girlfriend is or what type of mom on Instagram, like stop following all those hashtags, stop labeling yourself as a crunchy mom or soft loving mom or whatever type of mom. You had a baby in your uterus, you pushed it out or got it cut out and that baby is alive. You are a mama, period. So all that other stuff is irrelevant because it only adds another layer of stress. You can't do this because I don't believe in this, and I'm this type of mom. So I can't do that because I'm this type of mom. And we really, we really reach ourselves and we stress ourselves out in that way. And um, that's just one of the biggest things that as a mom, I noticed. Like, I'm not into mom shaming. I'm like, girl, you keeping that baby alive. Everybody heard, you know, you do a good job.
4: Girl, doing good job. <laughs>
2: <laughs> like the rest of it doesn't matter. Um, so having those people and letting them help you be you. And like, you know, Mercury asked about what you can do. Like one of the best things my husband does for me when he thinks about it, I guess, is like says, I got the boys, don't come home. I'm like, what's wrong? You know, what's wrong? It's like, no, nothing. Go get your toes done. Go watch a movie. You. you go eat whatever we I got. I'm gonna feed the boys and put them to bed. And I'm like, no, I'm gonna come home. It's like, no do it, you know, go do something, don't come home, go eat, go eat whatever you want, you know, I like red lobster, you know, this ain't sponsored, but I like red lobster, the rest of the people in my family don't really like it that much, right, I like burritos, I could eat a burrito, I don't know, every week, but not them, you go, go eat your burrito, go get your pedicure, just come home whenever you, whenever you get done, and you sometimes need somebody to Essentially, make you take that time for yourself. That's kind of how I am. Tanil, she's kind of gotten that whole self care thing. She got a groove with that, you know. But I'm, I'm having to learn that. I almost have to schedule that um, because I'm. I, it's an it's it's the last thing. So that's that's a big one. Stop labeling yourself. You ain't a you ain't a crunchy mom. You ain't a whatever. You a mama. Just
3: take and move on. Yeah, stop the
2: comparison.
3: You yeah. gotta stop comparing yourself to people on Instagram and everything else because you don't know what demons people are going through. Yep. Yeah.
4: Okay.
3: So I don't right. know what they have, what demons they have and what they
2: what struggles they have and everything angering on the other side. Mm-hmm. And as partners and spouses, you might have to make her you know stop. You know, stop. I, those clothes, I got them. i I got 'em. I gotta I got them. I got them. No, I got them. We don't let you know. You want to go eat? No, I don't want to. I'm outside. Come out here. You know, mm-hmm. you got a pregnant yeah. friend. Trust me, feed her. She want to eat. Yes. Okay. <laughs> you know, we should go. You know, we should go eat. Whatever, whatever. Oh, uh, we. I, I don't really want to go. You know, I don't like driving. on the seatbelt over my. bed Well, come outside then. I'm here. We going. And so you just yeah. like what? Like you don't give me don't give me a chance to say no. Don't give me a chance to schedule it because it'll get pushed back. So that's one of the biggest things that I definitely miss. That me being here alone, just like not only having somebody to pop up on me, but I like to pop up on my friends. You know, when they like talking crazy, I'm like, "What? We we about to go?" And so I do. I miss that um, being over here by myself. So you know if anybody wanna pop up at LAX, I'll come get you, but uh planning yeah. <laughs> is involved. You try to pop up in Cali.
4: <laughs> Less- so that
2: I think
1: spouses and partners need to remember to give mama some grace, a lot of grace.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, because she's not who she was before baby got here. Um mm-hmm. it's in- it's important to recognize that. Because I think, and I don't think it's intentional, but you just expect her to jump back into that role or to, mm-hmm. to play the role that she had. If she wants to, it's not like she wants to um, be negligent to any piece of her household, but she's just trying to figure it out. And, you know, mama has to give herself grace. And as partners and as spouses, we have to recognize that she needs grace, especially through that first year, because everybody's just trying to figure it out. Like every when I say, every, ain't no, ain't no rule book, ain't no you don't get like a checklist to this you literally are winging it day by day um, so yeah, just just have, give her grace she's going she's going to be a hot mess most days
0: but just mm-hmm. over through it so well i mean i i don't think it's really much left to be said after that i mean it's um you know, kind of the closing thought that I'm I'm even taking away from this conversation with you all is like things I haven't even considered. You know, as a friend, as a family member, you know, as a, you know, just 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 as a man, you know, kind of understanding and a lot and a lot of the things you know I try to talk about and try to bring up is one so I can understand better so that I can help you know in the ways that I can and I can be a better you know community member and support the people and the initiatives and the things that I care about. And, you know, to be able to have this conversation, you know, for you all to be as transparent and as open and as willing as you were to talk about some of these things are super personal. And even to acknowledge that some of these things are probably a little bit too private and we need to kind of create spaces, safe spaces to have these conversations, to have the support and, you know, be able to advocate so we can, you know, tackle some of these systemic issues that disproportionately negatively affect um, women and black women in particular, but yeah, this was great. I mean, I don't, I don't even know what to say. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm floored. I was taking notes. You know what I'm saying? Of how I can, how I can be better. You know what I'm saying? All this kind of stuff across the board. So again, I appreciate you guys. I uh, appreciate your time. Um, I don't, I don't what to say. So I'm it's going good. to my boiler. So everyone make sure y'all like subscribe, you know what I'm saying? Share the page. Uh, we are on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, YouTube, you name it, we there. Will y'all listen? We there too. Um, um, and again, thank you, Tip, Tanil, Keisha, for your time hearing all that's going on and knowing that y'all gave me an hour and 30 minutes of your Sunday. I'm fruit baskets going to everybody. Like I don't I don't even know what else to do. So <laughs> So I appreciate y'all. Is there anything, any of you want to close with? Any last notes, any last thoughts?
4: Cool. <laughs> Thank you for,
1: for having this um, avenue, this, this method or way of just having the conversation. I think that um, alone speaks volumes to the man you are and the character you have and your love and support for black women. Um, you have always loved and supported Black women. And I think this speaks volumes and will do more work than you know. So thank you for having us.
0: For sure. And I certainly friends. hope so. Hmm? Check on your mom friends. Oh, yeah. Check on your mom friends. Oh, yeah. Hashtag check, check on your mom, mom friends. friends. Check on your mom friends. You Sorry, right, folks. With that, again, um, it's The Hill. Um, as always, it's love. Thank y'all again. Uh, much appreciated. And uh, we'll lock in later. It's love. you let me know everything. Somebody told me that I'm gonna be something. Yeah, don't
4: want for anything, and i will be nothing. Yeah, and we're like the edge of all the noise. like a message from all the law.